0: the smaller the stakes, the bigger the drama, you know? <laughs> so it's like some itty bitty little thing that everyone's like completely freaked out about I think, Well, wait a minute. You know, like maybe we could get upset about something bigger, you know, and we're going to get upset. Uh, and I think that's yeah. really true that we, we do. It's like we recapture a lot of energy by not getting so invested in every single small thing that really is not making a difference. For anybody, but we get invested nonetheless, and I think of clarity as really perspective.
1: Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman and I produce this wonderful podcast, and today we are bringing you episode 221, which is the second to last episode in our real-life series that we've been doing since the spring. And of course, this series is all conversations centered around Sharon's new book by the same name, Real Life, And today's guest is the wonderful Daisy Hernandez. This conversation was originally aired as part of the Living an Authentic Life Summit that we helped to put together as part of the launch of Real Life. And so the theme for this conversation is the dawning of clarity, the emergence of equanimity. I'll let Sharon introduce Daisy to you more. We're very excited to have her here on the podcast for the first time. Before we get into the episode, a quick announcement for you. We have a brand new edition of one of Sharon's books that just came out last week, Love Your Enemies, and this is a book that Sharon co-authored with the wonderful Bob Thurman, Robert a.f. Thurman. The occasion for it being released as a second edition is the 10-year anniversary of when it originally came out. It's a wonderful offering, and we're delighted to have it out in this new 10th anniversary edition. There are new introductions, both by Sharon and Bob, and you can get it in paperback or ebook. So you can head over to Sharon's website And you'll see it there on the homepage with ordering information. So that's all for announcements. Let's dive into the episode. Sharon Salzberg and Daisy Hernandez.
0: Welcome back to The Summit. I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm very pleased to welcome Daisy Hernandez for a conversation about emergence, the dawning of clarity, and how creativity and awe are part of that. To begin with, Daisy Hernandez is a journalist, associate professor of creative writing at Northwestern University, and the author of The Kissing Bug, the true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. She won the Penn Jean Stein Book Award and was selected as an inaugural title for the National Book Foundation's Science and Literature Program. Her memoir, Cup of Water Under My Bed, won the IPPY Award for the Best Coming-of-Age Memoir, and Lambda Literary's Dr. Betty Burson Emerging Writer Award. The memoir was also a Publishing Triangle Award finalist. Hi, Daisy.
2: Hi, so good to be with you.
0: <laughs> it's very good to be with you. I wonder if we can start by you talking about how you became interested in mindfulness meditation how you began practicing and what's kept you following that for for all this time
2: yeah it has been a long time now <laughs> amazing how the years tick by i you know the first time i came across buddhism was actually in a magazine um and it was it must have been an excerpt of a pema Chodron book um that, but it was all about anger and I was in college around that time. Um, I was not one of these people who uh, did a traditional going away to college, living on campus. I, I lived at home um, with my father, whom I was angry with all the time for very valid reasons. And I worked at my pub, the public library in town, which is actually how we got a subscription to a Buddhist magazine. It was wonderful um, in that time period. So... Um, so it was my intro, my introduction to Buddhism was actually all about anger and, um, and how, and the idea that I didn't necessarily have to make the anger go away. And at that time, in my life, it was like I was ba- battling with anger and, and I would say also with rage and trying to get rid of it. And, um, and so the idea that, um, that I did not have to get rid of it was just completely, um, shocked me. And also there was also I still remember there was also the idea that there might be some wisdom there for me, that if I was willing to be with the experience of anger to really um, experience it, to be present to it, that there might be some wisdom that that it just felt like someone had offered me a completely different way of looking at myself and the entire world. Um, I was also not the only person in my family who was angry. (laughs) <laughs> so it did give me also some ideas about everything else to my family so that actually made me curious like that made me seek out um a buddhist group and to sit and um and just yeah and now here we are i'm not going to count the decades but <laughs> it's been so many years later yeah it's kind of shock. It's, I'm, I'm having shock about this lately so it's funny you ask about <laughs> <that>. <laughs> It feels uh-huh. like I just learned the teaching about the teachings yesterday. So very yeah. yeah. strange to me.
0: Yeah, no, I understand totally. Like when I get introduced these days uh, somewhere, and somebody says, "and she's been practicing more than <laughs> thirty years," I think, "No, it's more than that." <laughs> like you got upset, but maybe we won't talk about that. You know,
2: <laughs> it's technically true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about emergence today, and I like that word for one thing, Um, and the idea that following a path, certainly there are ups and downs uh, repeatedly, but there is a kind of trajectory that I think we experience where maybe we get caught up in the same old stuff, but for not as long, and it feels better to feel in harmony than to feel discordant and, and sort of you know, denying reality in some way. And and that state I'm calling emergence as we continually progress in some way. And some of the attributes that just come naturally, you know, not because we're craving them or we're trying to force them, but they're just part of that emergence. And one of them is clarity. It's the dawning of clarity. It's perspective on things. And I'm wondering if you have something in your life, a time in your life or an experience where, that was very pronounced that that you had a different kind of clarity
2: for some reason the first memory that comes to mind is the parking issue (laughs) Uh, so i was i lived in the bay area for about seven years and um, and i worked in downtown oakland and um and I could take public transit to work, but so I, I, I rarely took my car to work uh, and I was actually starting to ride a bicycle at that point. So I was biking to work, which was really exciting. But this particular day I had the car and um, and I can get pretty intense behind the wheel. <laughs> People think I'm very sweet and so forth, <laughs> uh, full of equanimity and then just put me in a car and I'm like, I've got places to go. <laughs> I've got parking spots that I can see a mile ahead. Um, and it was hard to get parking around my office building. Right. Um, but again, I am a little, I should probably be more fearful behind the wheel. I'm a little fearless sometimes. And, um, and I saw the parking spot a mile away. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I guess I'm thinking of this because it was around that time in my life where I was going more often to spirit rock sitting on a more regular basis with Sanka. So So I think that um, emergence was happening for me. I didn't quite realize it. Um, So the most amazing parking spot opened up. It was the coveted parking spot, the parking spot that all of my coworkers wanted right outside the front door of our building. (laughs) It rarely opened up, you know. Um, And this was like after lunch, you know. Oh, that was the thing. I would also like, if I did bring my car, I would have to like kind of rotate it around the neighborhood at various points throughout the day. So this was one of those. It was going to be the last rotating around the day. Um, I saw the parking spot. Uh, I was going to parallel park into it. So I got in position and I go to back up and I back up. And there is a little sports car pulling into it. And I was like, Oh, no. (laughs) Clearly first dibs are mine. Um, And so this actually ties in with like rage and anger, because um, I could talk about more serious topics. But yes, put me behind the wheel. And I connect really quickly with my anger and my sense of I know what's best on the road. And clearly no one else has learned how to properly drive or park in this case. Um, and I proceeded to, uh, honk away. Um, I don't remember what else I did. I think I, I think I rolled down the window and like, I didn't make bad hand gestures, but I gestured like, this is my spot. I'm backing up, you know, clearly. Um, I also think, I was not driving the best car in town. I can't remember which car it was. It must have been the little gray, wasn't a Honda. Anyway, whatever car, it was it was my used and abused car. So I was feeling a lot of rage about the cute new little sports car that was like trying to take my parking spot. And we sat there for a while. I'm just going to be honest. We sat there for a while. It was a while. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can do this, like, sit here for hours until the other person decides they can't take it anymore. (laughs) So inadvertently I was sitting there (laughs) with myself. And I think just, um, you know, it's just, it's still amazing to me how, you know, what happens on the cushion happens off the cushion. Right. And I just had this moment of like, wow, like my adrenaline is going, I am ready to get out of the car and key this cute little sports car. (laughs) Like I am ready to take him out. And I found myself noticing my breath and just, yeah, what was going on for my body, which was like real. And I was like, I was like, what? This is not worth this. I was like, you need you need your uh your serenity. That's what I was saying to myself. Daisy, your serenity is worth more than this parking spot and your integrity is worth more than this parking spot and just, you know, feeling at peace is worth more than this parking spot. And so I am happy to say I pulled away. I pulled away. <laughs> I pulled out of the parking spot. I found another one that was not that far away, which I feel like is an important part of the story. Sometimes when we tell like little spiritual anecdotes, we're like, "And then I took the high moral ground, and like, you know, um, I didn't get what I want, but it was okay. No, I still got what I wanted. <laughs> it was not horrible. <laughs> These, the, the, op, the other option was not it was not twenty miles away or anything like that. It Was not terrible, but yeah, it was this moment of like, wow." Something is really changing for me. Like I am, I am just <laughs> it might not sound like progress to others, but for me, the ability to say, wow, I think my peace of mind is more important than this. And um, and this is not I remember like getting to the other parking spot and just thinking, wow, like this is also now how I want to relate to anyone, a stranger or a friend. Um, this is so not worth it, you know. Like, why did that feel so important? Wow. And then I was, I got you know, I had this opportunity to be like, wow, I was really attached to that parking space. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a moment where I felt like um yeah, some new part of me was emerging. And I do have to say I haven't actually thought about this since then, but yeah, I do feel like it was some kind of unexpected turning point about my relationship with parking. Cause I definitely don't, <laughs> I have not like, you know, I don't have that ongoing relationship, you know, where I know like sometimes when I'm in someone's car, they've got that going, like, do you see a spot? Do you see a spot? Bring in your car parking car. Karma. Come on, come on. You know? And I'm like, it's going to be fine. Wherever we park, we'll be just fine <laughs> not the end of the world. But yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was a moment that immediately came to mind when you asked that question. <laughs>
0: It's so funny you say that because um, I am a New Yorker. I didn't learn how to drive until my thirties, and I'm an extremely timid driver. Like I sometimes say to people, you "I know, would
2: not be fighting with you on the road, sure." <laughs> you, would, you
0: would? Well, you might be because I might be in front of you and you'd be furious. And I'm really slow, you know. I'm like, and I say to people, like, if I'm not driving, I'm sitting there as a passenger, and we get to some kind of intricate turn, and they just like. Scoot over, i say, you know, I'd still be there a week later. Like, just waiting, having <laughs> somehow to stop, you know, so I can make the turn. I'm very timid as a driver, and parking is not my really great skill either, you know. like mm-hmm. My friend recently had a – she moved to another state. She had to take a parking t- – a li- <laughs> driving test, which was like a parking test in my mind. <laughs> so I said, did you have to parallel park? And she said, they didn't make me. And I said, oh, good, you know, like. I like, can't do that either, but, um, <laughs> I relate to the rest of, of what you said, that maybe the particulars of being a bold yeah. and a uh, strong driver, but you know, that sense of, um, as I get older, you know, and, and hopefully wiser just that sense of like choose your battles and maybe it's not worth a B or C I'd rather have peace, you know, but it doesn't mean getting weak or giving up a sense of principles or, or ardency about certain things. It's just like, um, I guess when, uh, you know, the book came out of don't sweat the small stuff. It was really pretty true.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a form of strength actually. Yeah. My mother used to say, I guess in Spanish, the equivalent to don't sweat the small stuff is, um, no te ahogues en un vaso de agua, like don't, literally don't drown yourself in a cup of water. (laughs) Um, Don't get so overwhelmed by every small thing. Um, But when I was a child, I hated every time she said that um, because I felt like it was the dismissal that I was going through something, you know? Whereas I think that moment with the parking, what made a difference for me was that I was actually acknowledging what was happening. Like, okay, (laughs) I am making a very big deal. This feels like a big deal. This is what's happening. And I think there's something... About acknowledge, like you know, both like acknowledging what's happening, um, and then acknowledging that like I can put it in its right place. That like it feels like those two things have to happen together for me. Yeah, well, that's clarity, right? (laughs) That's a great Mm -hmm. example, or yeah, clarity and (laughs) compassion, right? Yeah, Yeah.
0: you know, because I think I have a friend who says um, this obviously plays out a lot in families and relationships Mm and institutional life sense of priorities and perspective and choose your battles, you know, and you fight the ones yeah. that are really important to you. But this, my friend says something like, um it's very clever, like um the smaller the stakes, the bigger the drama. You know, <laughs> so it's like some itty bitty little thing that everyone's like completely freaked out about and think, well wait a minute, you know like maybe we could get upset about something bigger, you know, if we're gonna get upset. Uh, and I think that's yeah. really true that we, we do, it's like we recapture a lot of energy by not getting so invested in every single small thing that really is not making a difference for anybody, mm-hmm. but we get invested nonetheless. And I think of clarity as really perspective on things. It's like, oh yeah. Um, another place I've been very timid is about in the past was about is like public speaking, which was an impossibility for me. A very long time as a teacher, you know which was a problem uh you know, but um the kind of clarity that came from realizing I could be myself or I could make a mistake or people were really looking for predominantly a sense of connection, not expertise and um and you're you know you're a teacher, and I think it is very much in play like what will people retain? Maybe some technical skills for sure about writing. And largely, I think they'll retain your, your sense of faith in them or interest in them that will be onward leading for them.
2: Absolutely. It's so interesting you say that because I was terrified of public speaking. And before I was teaching, I was in situations where... I, I was invited to give talks on certain subjects, uh, mostly at colleges, to come and talk about media representations, about women of color and feminism. And um, and it was terrifying. It was so, so terrifying. I had um, a wonderful friend who um, had worked as a, as a theater director, and she really encouraged me to go to the spaces where I would be speaking before the event, or as early as I could, you know, um, and to, and to actually sit there and really look at the physical space that I was going to be, you know, inhabiting. And, and she also really recommended that I allow myself, cause sometimes I would like hide behind stage or wherever, whatever little green room they would tuck you into. I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to just have my little panic attack here by myself. And, um, And she encouraged me to do the opposite. She said, no, get out there and allow yourself to watch people coming into the room, which felt like when she first said it to me, I thought, yeah, no, (laughs) that is that is more, that's like watching all of my fears walk into the room. And I kind of had something similar to what you're describing, which is that as people work, I still remember the first event where I did this and I started allowing myself to watch watch each person that as they were coming in or like groups of students as they were coming in and um, and to just like invite like a like I don't know, like a spiritual sense of connection with them. And sometimes and that kind of started to translate to like, oh, hello, I'm so glad you're here. I didn't know who they were, um, but you know, like just welcoming them into the space. And it actually gave me a sense of comfort with the space you know like it actually felt like a little bit like oh this is my home and I'm welcoming the people here it was really such a change um and what people said is also true I don't know if this is true for you but for me it was also true people told me oh the more you do it the more at ease you will feel with it you know but I thought they meant like the first three times not the first 300 times (laughs) (laughs) So if any of you are waiting for it to get better, you might just not have reached, you know, 300 or whatever. It took a long time, but it is really interesting how differently I feel about it today than um, 20 years ago. Yeah.
0: Well, for me, like everything you said so beautifully translates into loving kindness, like welcoming people into the space and seeing them, looking at them, you know, instead of this sort of blur of, you know, faces, sitting there waiting to judge you, you know, uh, it's Mm -hmm. a sense of connection. And that's really how I did it. Like inadvertently, like I, um, began teaching formally in retreat form, which was how we did all our early teaching in this country. And, uh, it was a month long retreat with Joseph Goldstein as my colleague. And so month long retreat, given the pattern of our days on retreat, which is that people practice during the day and there's questions and answers and small group meetings and things like that. And then there's one formal discourse in the evening. And I could not do a single one of them because I was so terrified. And and Joseph had his, so he had to speak for thirty nights in a row. And people were going up and yelling at him saying, Why don't you let her have a voice? Why don't you let her speak? And he'd say, I'd love a <laughs> night off. Talk to her, you know. Could not do it. I was absolutely terrified. And they were going up
2: to him you anti-feminist how dare yeah, you no, exactly you know <laughs> squash the woman
0: <laughs> yeah and i i was just i couldn't do it and and what i was afraid of specifically was that i'd be speaking and my mind would go blank and i'd just be sitting there and everyone would know I'm like oh her mind just went blank with her <laughs> and i could i just could not do it so we did that retreat we did subsequent retreats i could not do it and then I remember, and this was a long time before I went to Burma and intensively practice loving kindness meditation, but I remember there was such a thing as loving kindness. And I thought, oh, you know, if that happens, if I'm speaking about loving kindness and my mind goes blank, I can always launch into the guided meditation because there's a guided meditation. So I thought, oh, no one will know. So then the only thing I could talk about was loving kindness because, you know, and I have here in the house, I have piles of cassettes because it was that long ago of me giving really one talk which was the loving kindness talk just so many of them and then one day I had the thought kind of like what I was saying earlier like oh it's all about loving kindness it's all just about connection that's what's really happening here in these evening lectures you know it's not that someone's waiting for my you know peerless expertise on something they want to be connected to the material they want to be connected to their own experience they want to be connected to me to us to the world that we are co creating in this retreat and from then on, I could speak about anything because it was all kind of based on that
2: that 's so true. I feel that with i teach so I teach creative writing. And I really feel like what I'm doing, yeah, is holding the space for them to connect with one another, with the text that we're reading, with me as a, as a professor, if they want to, they don't always want to. Um, but yeah, a lot of, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about it that way, but a lot of it is like holding space for connections genuine connections to happen. And some, and, and it's also, a, I think this about meditation and Dharma talks too, it's it's a space of play as well. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. It can't be pre-planned. It can't be put on the agenda. <laughs> um, there's, there's an element there of surprise, um, which is partly what we also come for, I think, too.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. So that's all clarity. I mean, I would call all that clarity, you know, having some perspective and because uh, it's different than feeling um you know kind of the normal ego satisfaction of accomplishment in some way, even though we're doing it by you know suffering mightily uh, is something very different, so I think of you as you know as the equanimity lady because I first came upon your writing <laughs> for, uh, for Tricycle magazine on equanimity, and I was writing something on equanimity and so researching the topic again, I thought, oh, look at that. She's really good. Uh, you know, and you embody it so much and you've written about it so beautifully. So uh, you said that the word equanimity struck you as a far off concept and a mouthful of a word. So thinking about it in terms of a little house or a casita, something much more workable for you, both conceptually and culturally. And could you say
2: something more about that? Yeah, I I think I've said this to you before, but my partner you know, does find it funny that you think of me as the equanimity lady. So every time I talk to you, I'm like, right, I need to practice this more at home. <laughs> um, but yeah, equanimity as a word felt, um, you know, just I, we don't use it as often. Right. So it felt very formal. Um, it felt like, yeah, sort of a level of expertise was required. Um, I think I wrote in in my essay or I don't know if it made it to the final draft, but it also, it kind of felt like retirement or like thinking about like 401s or like money in retirement. Like I'll have to worry about that someday (laughs) far off in the future. And then, Oh wow, it's here. It's coming. (laughs) Okay. So I felt that way with that word equanimity, like I must need to do other things before I can fully appreciate the scope of that word. And then, yeah, as I started thinking about it, um, you know, it came up because of, uh, you know, being a human being, in, in, particularly in the United States, in the wake of the 2016 election, it was like losing equanimity every day. Every morning I would wake up and turn on the news and something new had happened um, that just devastated me. And I was like, if I'm going to survive, just on a personal level, if I'm going to like keep my emotional well-being intact for the next four years... I need something. And, um, and equanimity was what came up for me. Um, and so I, I did, I, I, you know, yes. Thinking about it as the little casitas, I needed, I think this is sort of, I needed an image. And I think that that worked for me. Uh, Yeah. Little casitas, little houses, um, the divine abodes. I needed to really connect with that image. And actually it's kind of interesting because right now I'm at a point where I'm grading, um, All this creative work from my students. Um, We're on a quarter system. So we just ended a quarter. And, uh, and I find myself oftentimes, you know, telling them and, you know, the feedback that I'm giving them is what we talked about in class, which is when you can create an image you know, you allow the reader to have a sensory experience. You allow the reader to step into that moment. And so for me, I realized I needed to do that for myself in a spiritual way. And so thinking about it as a little house that I could like walk into (laughs) felt so inviting and felt more familiar. I think also, honestly, bringing Spanish to it. Also, um, that's the language that we still speak at home with my parents. So that also made it much more familiar and more inviting, um, and I think I often forget that about spiritual practices that like that like the sort of question of, oh, what can I do to make this easier for myself? <laughs> like, what can I do to make it more inviting and more familiar? It doesn't always occur to me. Um, and, as you know, as a person of color, I often am translating, you know, culturally different ideas. Um, but somehow, yeah, with that one, it was like necessary to do like a deeper a much deeper translation, um, to feel like, yeah, I, this is a equanimity is available to me, the sense of, I am able to have some kind of emotional balance, even in this incredible storm that, you know, we all went through as well, um, as a country and continue, I would say continue in it is, it was not only one four year period in time, although that was pretty brutal. Let's acknowledge that. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I don't, I feel like I'm losing, like, I'm like, what else can I say about this? <laughs> um, my mind is going blank. So this is what I, this is what my trick is. Let me turn back to the other person. <laughs>
0: well, you're making such an interesting point, right? Equitimity, um in the Buddhist tradition means balance, but it's not apathy. It's not indifference. It's a very kind of exquisite definition of, of balance. It might mean in some contexts, the balance of loving kindness for yourself, as well as others or compassion for yourself as well as others or the balance of compassion and wisdom. Like I want to do everything I can to try to help you, but it's not ultimately my hands, you know, I'm not in control of the universe or change might take time. I need to do everything I can right now. And I may not see the the flowering of my efforts right away Um, because that's just in the nature of things. So it's bringing wisdom into a company compassion in some way or accompany anything, you know, so that we try our very best to make something happen. And then it's also kind of letting go, realizing that, you know, I gave you this gift. I can't insist that you say it's the best book you've ever read, you know, like, <laughs> as much as I might want to. It's just like, here here it is. I did the best I could. and um, So it does bring elements of peace, but it's not like relinquishing of, of aspiration or wanting to make a difference at all. And that's what's tricky about it. So you're talking about how equanimity might be an asset in very difficult circumstances with a lot of adversity and things not going your way, you know, uh, you, for uh, yourself, for your country, for, you know, your community. And um, so it's a very interesting reflection, how equanimity can be a source of strength and not the kind of weakness we tend to be thinking it is.
2: Oh, yeah. I think it's such a source of strength. Oh, my goodness. I actually, I feel like it's one of, like, it's, like, yeah, the secret power. I don't watch enough, like, of those Avenger movies. But anyway, whatever they talk about, <laughs> with, like, having, like, yeah, you sort of, like, superpower that's, like, not necessarily always visible to others. Because I also think um, that it's hard for me to know what the next right action is if I'm not in a place of equanimity, you know? So I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. I I feel like that's really, you know, that's, I don't know. Yeah. I I need to be in that place of balance and peace and having clarity about what I think I can do and what I can't do. Um, So I I, like, yeah. And I don't, you know, I I feel like I took extra care of myself during in the wake of that particular election, because I realized like, I'm not going to be, of use. Like if I want to go, you know, march in DC, which I did, and was like an incredible life experience. I've never been with that many thousands and thousands of women in one place. Um, but in order to show up for that, like, and channel like my energy and my anger in the right direction, I needed to be in a place of equanimity beforehand and I needed to have slept well. <laughs> I needed to have good meals. I needed to have gone with friends and loved ones, not by myself. You know, I really needed to get them together as well. So yeah, I needed to do a lot of things so I could show up and, um, and use my voice right in that moment in in a way that I felt would be effective. Um, even, even though there's so many, um, moments of despair. Yeah. You know, I think
0: sometimes we don't realize that Some of the people we admire um, are really manifesting a kind of equanimity, but in uh, not my most recent book, but in an earlier book, I quote you. Uh, And uh, maybe you could tell that story again. Was it your aunt who was cooking Food and the oh the hurricane yeah yeah some kind of devastation
2: yes my father's cousin um so we were in um we were in Florida this was a very long time ago when it was uh, very devast Southern Florida was very devastated by a hurricane and. Um, I'm wondering how much of the story I told in the essay. There's a lot, that's like a whole little (laughs) novella in and of itself, but yeah, but it was, it was a very scary night. Um, you know, we boarded the the windows and, um, we spent it on a mattress on the floor away from the windows as well. And more in the center of the house and the sounds that night were just really horrifying. And so when we woke up then, you know, got up the next day, um, the wind had the winds had calmed down the hurricane had passed, and we, anyway the, we were finally able to go out. It was very scary, and we were not even the worst affected at that point with that hurricane homestead was the one that was really that that area of Florida was very devastated where many many you know lives lost um homes completely shattered um but even in our neighborhood um or my my cousin's neighborhood, um, you know, trees were completely uprooted, which I had never seen before. And I'm not talking about like a little tree on the, on the street corner. I'm talking about these just immense, I don't know what, what what specific, um, tree species, but just very thick, you know, trunks just, I, I, I think I might've written, I mean it just looked like a hand had come down and pulled them up out of the earth. It would, you know, all their roots splayed everywhere. It was just very intense and no running water, um, nothing, you know, everything was shut down during that time. And, um, and the men in our family were having a very hard time <laughs> as, um, as, as people who are used to being the providers and in Latinx culture, you know, just a lot of men have a lot of feelings about the role that they have in, in a moment of, um, uh, of disaster like that. And there was little that could be done. And my cousin, my dad's cousin, um, just amazed me because she was just, uh, you know, this is a woman who fled communist Cuba has uh, went through another country to get to the U S had to start over, you know, folks, it's not the first time that folks have been through something really difficult. And she, she was the one who was calm and was like boiling water and, Making she's also an amazing cook, <laughs> so cooking these uh, black human beings that were just amazing and just continuing to cook and like and be this kind of spiritual center during that moment, I just found her energy to be so soothing kind of goes back to what you were saying before, too, about connection. I felt very connected to her in that moment, and I can't do anything in the kitchen, so and I was like a, I was pretty young, actually, it was good. I didn't offer to do anything in the kitchen, but just watching her. Um, you know, felt like a meditative practice. And she just, you know, I feel like she really kept everyone together during that time. And she was so balanced. Um, And it was, and I could totally see how someone could read her as being indifferent to, um, you know, to all the destruction that had happened during that time. But for me in that moment, I didn't, I did not read her as being indifferent. She was very clear. She was very clear. We did not have running water. We did not know when the water was going to come back. Um, you couldn't go to the bank and get cash. Whatever you had on you was it. Um, she was not only providing for her family, but she was also hosting me and my mom and my sister, et cetera. So she had an extra full house. So she was very clear. Yeah. Talk about someone having clarity. Um, But she wasn't off course, you know, and I think in the essay, I compare her to like it really felt like sometimes I I lived in Florida for a few years and I would just be amazed by these palm trees. You would get these like ferocious, um, not hurricanes, but just ferocious storms, tropical storms. You would just get pounding rain and you would watch these. Palm trees just sway and sway from one side to the other. I had an apartment building. I lived in an apartment building during that time where I felt like, are they going to fall on top of me? But they always just swayed right away (laughs) in the other direction. You know, and I was like, that is an image for me. It's like you can stay rooted and still, you know, you're going to get knocked off course. You're human. I'm a human, you know. Um, but I'm still rooted. And I felt like she was so rooted for all of us during that time. It was incredible. Yeah, her name's Margot. <laughs> Margot was very rooted.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the images or one of the metaphors you've used um, is equanimity as an anchor. You know, which is very much the sense of something that helps us have some steadiness in the face of. Tremendous adversity
2: sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, she was absolutely an anchor for us during that time. And I feel like you know, kind of going back to what you were saying about teaching as well. I feel like she was teaching me so much in that moment. You know, there was such a, the connection, and and you know, she was teaching me by how she was living her life. And I was like, yeah, I want to be like that. <laughs> When the storm comes, you know, to be able to stay anchored, to stay centered, to know what to do next, um, to not give in, you know, to acknowledge the despair of the moment, but not to give into it. That's like, that's big stuff. <laughs> yeah. She's an incredible elder.
0: Like not everybody, of course, cultivates that quality through meditation. But one of the things I've always um, been asked about meditation or, or people comment about meditation practices, Uh, you know, I did it when my life was really unhappy and I was under all this stress, and things got a lot better, so I just stopped. You know, once I was interviewed uh, for a magazine, I never got in. When they published the the interview, they weren't including me, but uh, the question was something like, how can mindfulness play a role, and we'll substitute equanimity here for mindfulness, but how can mindfulness play a role in a time of complete crisis? And I said, I wouldn't wait. wait." Sometimes people do wait. It's only the pain or or stress of something that has them think differently or, you know, reach for something different. But it's like if you don't have to wait, it's like that ordinary day by day, you know, just strength training, which is building up a kind of resource and confidence and kind of sense of connection to others that should the bottom fall out of your life. Which it does, at least sometimes, and you, you're you're something to draw upon. You know, you've built up this this kind of resource and this clarity and this this ability to be present and more balanced with whatever. So, like, don't wait. You know, it's like the really ordinary, boring, routine, repetitive. Like, I got to sit. You know, that's when it's actually happening.
2: And yet we do wait. Why is that, Sharon? Why do we wait? <laughs> <laughs> I say this as someone who I feel like I am such a part-time Buddhist. Um, this last year, I have been the most consistent. But yeah, I'll go through these prayers. And I'm like, it's exactly that. Like things are cheery. I'm like, oh, la-da-da. <laughs> Away I go, you know. It becomes much more sporadic, more infrequent. And then something happens and I'm like, where's my cushion? <laughs> someone get the cushion. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, why? It's like, it. it's so... I don't know. I often think of, I've been thinking about that lately. Cause I'm like this last week I was traveling for a work conference and blah. Anyway, things were good. I was seeing so many people. It feel, it felt like the first conference since COVID I'm like, ah, and then I'm like, where's my cushion. <laughs> yeah. It, it feels like, um, I don't know. It feels like a spiritual paradox that like when there's joy, it, it's harder to sit.
0: Yeah, it's, it's true. But we can do it.
2: <laughs> you can do it. We can. <laughs> we can do it.
0: You really can do it. Um, so uh, you're a writer, of course. You're a writer of fiction and nonfiction, journalism, memoir, and congratulations again on, on, on the accolades and on, on your, your you. last book. And, um, and you teach creative writing, which fascinates me because I have felt uh, always that there's a path to everything because I learned there was a path to to meditation or living a happier life. And it's not like a prescribed path, you know, where you must do this and then you must do that. But um, there are guidelines and there are ways of looking and there are inspirations and there are (laughs) ways that we are almost urged to step outside of the familiar, step outside of the box and like, let's look from this angle, you know, or, or something like that. And so, Uh, I wonder if you could say something, first of all, about the role of creativity and as a combo, you know, as you were saying earlier, and we were talking about, um, you're not giving people rules. You're creating a space where they can connect, but I think it's combined likely with some sense of a path, right? Somebody said to me once, um, and urging me to write, you know, uh, Better. <laughs> they, were, they were kind of saying, uh, because like everyone, I have strengths and weaknesses. And my great weakness often in writing has been structure, which I think the single most common comment I ever got from an editor was, How'd you go from here to there? I said, it just went, I don't know. <laughs> no, it just went. And, and
2: I went and I hope you will follow me. <laughs> really? Can't you see?
0: Like tell me, you tell me. But I couldn't read it. You know, and somebody said to me once, well, what you have to do is look at the first sentence of every paragraph and make sure they can line up in some way. And I said, <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. Never occurred uh-huh. to me. What I realize I have been doing, uh, which is true, it's like if the last sentence of a paragraph said something like, um, and then they had a conversation before getting in the car. And then I I jumped to learning how to drive, you know, because the word car had been in there. But it had nothing to do with what I was writing about. You know, and I so I I appreciate things like that. And I find that fascinating, just kind of the structure of a of a pursuit of any kind and the so called rules and and the ability just to connect to what is and what's true. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm laughing because, um, yeah, structure. (laughs) With my last book, structure came at the possible, at the last moment that it could come. Um, And what I mean by that was that, you know, it's a book about a neglected disease. It's about racial politics and public health. And so there was a lot of research. I worked on it for seven years. And I was writing as I went along. I would write these like little, essentially vignettes. And sometimes it was about It was based on an interview that I did with someone. Sometimes it was based on an article that I had read and was needing to, like, translate it to my own (laughs) non-scientific language. And sometimes it was about my family because this was a disease that my auntie had been diagnosed with and, and ultimately died from. And so sometimes i would be reading something and it would you know you know awaken something about my auntie so i i had a lot of little vignettes <laughs> the, the sentences did not line up as you were as you were saying um and You know, one of the things that I learned is that like the structure itself is such a creative act. It's a form of writing, actually. And I'm really glad that I let myself write as it came to me. Um, And then that I took the structure as like its own creative practice in a way. Um, And so then it was like about arranging all these elements to be in relationship with one another uh, and then this is where a fantastic editor, thank you, Macy at Tin House, <laughs> came in. <laughs> and I gave her 80 pages and she started to create some chapters for me. That was fantastic. And still, you know, I was in conversation with a lot of other writers about like the overall structure of that book. And it was not until we were like, we we're about to go into production where I realized, oh my gosh, it's a three-part structure for the entire book. And this is how... It needs to be arranged. First, my family story, then the medicine and science in the second part, and then the, the stories of other families that I found in the United States that I wanted to share. And um, but I almost I really felt like I couldn't see that at the beginning. And I know for some writers, it's actually the opposite. Like it's too much structure, you know, or they can't start writing even until they have a structure, you know? So I feel like I'm at this place now (laughs) where I'm like, whatever your relationship is with structure, honor that and take that as like, that's an important part of your creative process. Uh, practice, you know, um, however you work with structure. Um, but yeah, with teaching creative writing, it, it's so much, it's really being an apprentice, you know, and I feel like not only are the students an apprentice, I'm an apprentice too, because, and what I mean by that is like, you know, I, what I'm sharing with them are like, Hey, here's what I know works based on other writers that I have studied with over the last 20 plus years. So, and it worked for me, it might work for you, but it might not. (laughs) This could be a total fail. So you're gonna have to use it, right? Here are the tools. And so so I know that writing about the sensory experience, whenever we can write about the body, especially the sensory experiences that we ignore, like smell and taste, whenever we write about those, we make the writing much more vivid for readers. Whenever we can recreate a scene on the page in nonfiction, that's the moment where that author disappears and the reader can be really close to the moment, you know, so that works. Um, However, it might not. (laughs) So, you know, again, you have to test drive. And I, one of the things, something I'm really appreciating in this moment too, is that my apprenticeship continues as a teacher. Like I'm constantly learning from them. You know, one of my students just, um, I taught this like all across genre class. So we had students writing poetry and nonfiction and fiction And there was just a beautiful line break at the end of this poem that I was just like, wow, The, the words were so simple, but they really earned their place on the page at the end of this poem. I was like, I love that. I love that that's working where I might not have thought it would work. And so, yeah, there's just, um, it's such an apprentice, you know, which I feel is actually very similar to being a meditator, right? Like what do we do? We show up, we show up again, (laughs) we listen to the talks, we test drive it, you know, coming back to that driving analogy. (laughs) Um, and yeah, it's kind of amazing. It is
0: amazing. You know, uh, not to, sort of belabor the point about meditation, but I was, I am about to ask you, even though we're talking about creativity as something that emerges, um, I'm about to ask you what you might do to actually nurture or tend to your creativity. And so I answered the question myself, being an apprentice also. And I realized that a lot of what I do comes through my meditation because structure, my great weakness, one of my great weaknesses as a writer is about relationship. How does one thing relate to the next? How does one sentence relate to the next? How does one example relate to the, you know, the body of the Mm -hmm. context and so on. So, and the the two times I have the best sort of insight come to me. are when I first wake up in the morning, because like the sensor is not yet woken up. And when I'm meditating, not because I'm trying to think, how do I get from here to there? But it just comes in a, Place of more quiet, more letting go, more peace. It's like, oh, there it is. That's how I get from there to here to there. Uh, So for me, meditation would be something Mm -hmm. that actually nurtures my ability to be creative. So how about you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. So how does the meditation nourish the creative? I mean, is there something
0: that you do that actually nurtures? Or what do you suggest to your students, you know, to nurture. Or to nurture
2: their, their creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, yeah, the novelist, Christina Garcia, she said that one of the things that she does before she sits down for a writing session is that she reads poetry and she'll read poetry for like 20 minutes. Um, and that can be a dangerous suggestion because a lot of people have been taught to be afraid of poetry. Um, I was one of those people and I associated poetry with like dead white men who I had to like decipher what they were saying and really work hard at it. Um and so a big change is that I had to find poetry that I liked, which is part of what I do with my students. I remember, um, pl- actually I, I played a YouTube video of the poet John Murillo reading one of his poems. And I still remember, this was such a win for me as a teacher, a student uh, saying, you know, when I, when I finished playing um, the, the video of him with his poem, of reciting his poem, uh, this one student yelled out, that's poetry? I didn't know that could be poetry. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so for me, yeah, it's finding, you know, when I found Mary Oliver's poems, ah, oh, that was such a life-changing moment as a reader. I was like, I love these poems. The funny thing is I, I mentioned that to a group of writers one time. Oh no, actually, I didn't mention that I was reading Mary Oliver. They They made a reference to Mary Oliver's poems and and, and the person who was mentioning it was apologetic because, um, she was saying, Oh, I, I know they're so accessible. I was like that's a bad thing that I can understand the poem <laughs> in certain circles. That's like a bad thing. So I've, I've come to appreciate um, that I am someone who likes to understand the poem. I have to look for poems that I can understand. So when I go on the po- poetry foundation website, um, I'm looking for the poems that I can understand at one level very quickly. Um, I can read for other layers of meaning <laughs> as I tell my students, but you have to like love it at the, at the level of your body, you know, like you need to like hear the poem or read it on the page and feel like, Oh, I'm feeling something. And, and I can't always even explain what it is that I'm feeling, but that really nourishes me, um, a lot to see what other writers are doing. And, um, yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of similar. I don't know, similar to being in Sanka actually, it's like, Oh, I guess everyone else is doing it. I can do it too. <laughs> you know. Um, there's something about being in community that nourishes that create, but I think both the creativity and the meditation for me.
0: <laughs> so great. No, just to broaden the definition of creativity um, and not thinking that it's only for so-called artists, you know, professional artists uh, I write in real life, um, my most recent book about how, Uh, The process of going deep within to access and then express the truth we find is the greatest of creative endeavors, whether it is formally recognized as art or not. Every conversation, every encounter, every working through of a misunderstanding, and every new unfolding in a friendship is an outlet for that process. And that way our lives themselves become our creative medium and our days are marked by discovery, celebration, and surprise. In a way we take ourselves less seriously while still maintaining standards of excellence. We can nonetheless relax more, surrender more to seeing what happens next. We can enjoy the unruly process of getting somewhere as well as hold in high regard, the idea of the somewhere. It surprises me to read that because I don't remember
2: writing that, you know, (laughs) but you know what that's like. It's just like, wow, where did that come from? (laughs) So, uh, Ultimately, we are like little vessels, right? (laughs) The words come through on a really good day. It's like, I'm just a vessel.
0: (laughs) So uh, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that unruly process of creation and how it plays out in your own life and in your work. And part of that, and you've already described it when you talked about the poetry, is when you might experience awe.
2: Yeah, I'm in the unruly process now because I'm working on a new book and it is unruly. And every time I know, you know, this every time a friend said this to me, which is really clarifying. Every time you start a new creative project, you forget you've ever done it before. Like the first time was super scary because you really had never done it before. And yet every other time you just forget like, oh, I wrote a book before I, I, I kind of know how to do this. I totally forget it. So it feels unruly. I think the only difference between unruly now and unruly, you know, uh, 10 years ago, is that like, oh, I know it's going to happen. Like (laughs) it is part of the process. It doesn't matter how many books you've written or what you've published in or whatnot. Like it is just always a little wild, which is what I love about it, which is what I love about it. Um, And I was working, uh, every project is so different, but yeah, I think part of like, what's making a difference this time is like just accepting that it's unruly and allowing myself to have fun with it. So I bought a special notebook in which I get to be totally wild and unruly. And, um, and, uh, so I don't know that anyone can fully appreciate this, but like, you know, I had a formal journalism training. So when I interview someone, it goes into a reporter's notebook. It's very specific. It's used for nothing else. This time I was like, I'm throwing that out the window. It's going into my beautiful notebook. So I did an interview with this legal scholar and it went into the notebook with all my other, you know, doodles and whatnot. And I'm like, wow, I'm being really wild right now <laughs> by my own standards. So also knowing that unruly means one thing for you and it means something else for another person, just like whether somebody acknowledges it as art or not, we do not have to wait for that. It is still creative work. Um, and, uh, yeah. And just, um, I also find it. Yeah. I think like, I find it also really helpful in my case as a nonfiction writer. I, I find the research to be grounding when it feels unruly. So I actually am really enjoying reading these really difficult art. I'm writing a book about citizenship in it's many forms. And so it's actually really great for me to hang out in these legal articles, um, that are very dense and totally not the writing that I'm doing, but I actually find that to be part of like, what offers kind of a balance to the unruliness of the creative moment? Um, yeah. How oh, great. So, uh,
0: you're not expecting this, um, but given how inspiring it was when you were talking about poetry, I wonder if um, we can end our time here together uh, by reading a poem of, that has brought you to all or part of a poem? You know, you wanna take a few Oh
2: my goodness. This is my favorite book right now, which I know that a book that's called Obit might bring up questions about why it's my favorite book. But Victoria Chang is amazing. And she um, many of these are these are actually all prose poems. So I discovered I'm a lover of the prose poem. And um, if you think you don't like poetry, go read some prose poems. And I think you will like them. Um or find them more a little bit, sometimes have an easier entrance um, into them. And this is a book where she um, she was caretaking her parents at the end of their lives. Um, so she writes an obituary for like, for example, my mother's lungs. She writes an obituary for privacy. So it's an obituary for um, both ideas and also um, actual, you know, For her parents as well. The future died on June 24, 2009. A pioneering figure in the past, the future was the president of the present. You are sitting, but the future wants your chair. She is demanding. She is not interested in the spine, but what it holds up. She is interested in award ceremonies. She is interested in fallen petals that look like medals. She is interested in anything with the word track in it tenure track, deer tracks, tracksuit. But she doesn't want you to get sidetracked or to backtrack. The future can be thrown away by the privileged, but sometimes she just suddenly dies. The way the second person dies when a mother dies, reborn as third person, as my mother. The way grief is really about future absence, the way the future closes its offices when a mother dies, what's left, A hole in the ground the size of violence. I feel like that's not a cheery ending to our conversation. (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) I love that. Thank you. But I come back to these poems all the time because of what she's doing with language is um, just so beautiful. And um, yeah. And I was thinking about a lot of, I was thinking a lot about grief with my last book. I still think about grief. There's so much to grieve. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for introducing the concept of a prose poem because I too, am afraid of poetry. <laughs> you
2: know, oh, so. prose poems are for you, Sharon. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really good one. Ooh, I'll send you another type, ti- the arranged marriage, which I don't know where that is in my book. off. Yeah. The arranged marriage is fantastic by Jahan Dubrow.
0: <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for, joining me today it's really it's such a joy to spend time with you daisy and to learn more about her work visit daisyhernandez.com it's d-a-i-s-y-h-e-r-n-a-n-d-e-z.com thank you
2: thank you
1: hey folks thanks for listening to learn more about sharon's many different offerings her courses virtual classes, or to get a copy of Real Life, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Real Life series on the Meta Hour podcast, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease.